You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It is echoing a little bit. Is it better now? Still echoing? Bueller, Bueller. Turn it down. Is that better? Okay. I'll try to speak slowly. That's hard for me. I'll look at it. Um, well, uh, let's pray and we'll dive in this morning back into John 1. So, Lord, we're thankful that in your mercies and in your kindness you brought us together again today. And I, I pray, Lord, that you will, in this season of Epiphany, again shine your light into the darkness of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's, let's turn to John 1. And I, I, I would be keen today, I just haven't done this in a long time. Uh, because time doesn't seem to allow it, but I'd love to give some time today for some Q&A if you all want to talk and battle around some ideas um, related to really whatever you want to talk about. Uh, again, we're in the prologue to John, which is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Last week, we focused primarily on the first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Um, I think it's worth taking a moment to reflect a little bit more this morning on the significance of what it means to identify Jesus as the Word. Um, and this, by the way, as with everything in the history of the Christian reception of the Bible, is a contested matter. What does it mean to refer to the Word? The, the Greek term is um, the Logos. Um, what, what is the word? What, what's the significance of identifying the second person of the Trinity as the word? And for those of you who maybe remember Western Civilization 101 or something like that, you might remember that in the Greco-Roman period, philosophically speaking, there was a lot of reflection on the significance of logos or word as a kind of appeal to rationality. Um, that that, that, that um, um, aspect of our humanity that allows us to think critically and creatively about things, referred to as, as the word. In fact, that was such a significant and understood reflection on logos or word in that world that it gave birth to a heresy. Um, and the heresy is probably not one that we talk about with Thanksgiving, not we talk about Heresy or things at all. But it's, it's not a common heresy that we refer to, but it's called Apollinarianism. Now, Apollinarianism was a heresy that arose in the late 4th century, early 5th century, that understood Jesus this way Jesus was a man, a human being from the 1st century world, and the Logos, um, the divine portion of God's being, took over his own rationality. So it displaced human rationality, human thinking, with the divine logos. And that's what made Jesus who he was. So he's not fully God, and he's not fully man in that conceptuality, because his mental process is divine, his rational process is divine, but everything else about him is just human. And that was called Apollinarianism. And of course, when we get into the 5th century, this is why these debates become so important. And they, admittedly, they can feel arcane and distant and overly cerebral. But underneath all of that arcane, distant, cerebral stuff, our salvation is on the line. 
right? I mean, these theological points really matter. It matters for your salvation that Jesus was fully man all the way, including his rational capabilities, his thinking process, his creative side. That's really important for your salvation that Jesus was really a man all the way and that he was really God all the way in one subject because that's how we know we're redeemed in him. Um, so the, the understanding within this world that the logos, the word, is, is rationality or thinking or the critical capabilities of our minds that make us distinct from the animal world around us, that got a lot of traction uh, in the early church. And I think we probably want to lean against that on some level. Because to my mind, and you'll see this throughout John's Gospel, you'll see it through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and really throughout the whole of the New Testament, when the, when the New Testament begins to think about things theologically and identify Jesus and explain him to us. Now, you can probably go to Vegas and go all in, right, on thinking that what's fueling their ideas, for the most part, is the Old Testament, the scriptures of Israel. They're not drawing, now they might borrow, I'm using the sort of term loosely here, they might borrow capital and language from the world around them, that first century world or the second century world. They might borrow language from that world, but when they receive that language into Christian discourse, um, for lack of a better term, they baptize that language in a way that is properly understood within the frame of the Bible itself. Well, let me give you an example of this. Um, if you turn uh, into Paul's theology, he's the only uh, writer or author of the Bible that, this is kind of surprising actually, but that uses the term reconciliation. Uh, which you think about that's such an important theological term, uh, reconciliation, but Paul's the only one that uses it. The, the Greek term is based off of a term called kadalasso. And, and it was a common term that was used in the first century world to be reconciled. But I want you to see how Paul takes a common word to the culture around him, receives it, and then does a kind of jujitsu move, you know, linguistically, flips it over, and fuses it with the substance that's drawn from the Bible itself, not necessarily from the substance attached from the culture around it. So, so this is what would happen with reconciliation. You pull Joe Blow, Greco-Roman, off the side of the road and say, hey, tell me about reconciliation. How, how does this occur? The average understanding would have been something like this. To be reconciled means that someone has offended, as the offending party, another person. So I'll use David Tanner here as an example. Let's say I did something to, to David. Um, I told you that his golf game is not as good as he tells you in the comments. Uh, he's upset about that with me. Uh, and I've offended David in some way. And we need to be reconciled. David is the offended party. I'm the offending party. For reconciliation to occur, I've got to go to David as the one who's offended him and make some sort of a ban for repayment or some sort of ask for apology for reconciliation to occur. In other words, I offended him, I've got to make reconciliation happen. And Paul takes that term, reconciliation, and, and absolutely reverses it. Think about it. God reconciled us to himself in his son. We were the offending party. We defended the Father in our sinful activity and our rejection of Him. But He doesn't wait on us to reconcile ourselves to Him. He reconciles us to Himself. No one in the world of Paul would have thought about it that way. And if you push me to a corner and you say, well, where did Paul get that idea of, of reconciliation? 
My answer would be very quickly, among other places, Isaiah 53. You, you have in Isaiah 53 the servant who's dying on behalf of others and reconciling them to the Father by his own sacrificial activity. So back to this concept of the Logos or the Word, I think this is a really important thing to understand that in the Old Testament, we have sort of peppered all throughout it anticipations, lightning flashes, to prepare us for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now this is really important. And I, I teach the Old Testament for a living, so I, I think you know, I've, got, I've got a dog in this fight. Um, that, that the Old Testament is not locked in the ancient Near Eastern world of its origin, but it's a book whose dynamics are alive and participating in divine realities that go beyond its moment in time. And you see these lightning flashes throughout the Old Testament that anticipate for us what will be revealed in time in its fullness in Jesus. And if, you, if someone would say, well, Mark, tell me where you think in the Old Testament we have Jesus prefigured for us. Um, this, I'm off script here. We can talk about this forever, right? Um, the whole, how, let's start with this one. The whole history of Israel. In other words, not just one place here or there. Uh, I call that finding Jesus in the Old Testament under rocks and trees. Right? There he is. It's like, um, what was that whack-a-mole thing? pops up here. It's, it's not, not just little verses here and there that talk about Jesus. The whole history of Israel, all of it, from her election by the Father, to her deliverance in Egypt, to her failure and rejection, to her promise of election to be a light to the whole world, Jesus takes into his own self in the Gospels the whole of the history of Israel, and he recapitulates the whole thing in himself. It's remarkable. So that's one place you might start. Um, uh, prophet, priest, and king, all other kinds of places. But, but one that I think is often left understated is the significance of the Hebrew term dabar, which means word. In other words, when, when, when word is translated in the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, you typically go from dabar, word, Hebrew, into logos, Greek, word. So that when you come to, for example, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Or, or Micah chapter 1, verse 1, and the word of the Lord was to Micah the prophet. Here you see the word as something that's distinct from the sending father, and yet identified with him at the same time. And here's the remarkable thing, and it becomes a material thing. This is the part of the feature that I don't think is talked about enough, but I think there's a lot of theological significance to the fact that the word comes to a prophet like Isaiah. God sends the word, the Father sends the word as the agency of his own self to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah delivers that word to the people of God, and then someone's writing that same word down on paper so that black words on a white paper that we have in our Bibles become to us a testimony of the future incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word becomes a material thing, something that can be seen and touched and felt in our very midst. Uh, I, I, by the way, I, I can't, I don't know, I think we're probably all in the same boat here, can't get over the incredible truth claim that it is that in the Bible, 
we have God's word given to us in human form. And that by giving this word to others and by engaging it ourselves, we engage in the very life and self-giving grace of God himself. I can give one of these things to my kids, right, and hand it off to them in the hopes that they might open that and read it. And in these material things right here, words on the page, the very life-giving spirit of God can enter into their hearts and make them alive. It's remarkable. So we have here in John chapter 1, verse 1, which talks about the Word becoming, uh, becoming that was with God and the Word was God, we see this Word language all wrapped up in the Old Testament itself and the fact that we have the Old Testament as a canon, as scriptures of our church, as traditions that were written on scrolls and passed on from generation to generation. Think about what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. And he says the same thing in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8. Um, he says this to his disciples. Write these things down. Because this current generation, they don't have the ears to hear or the eyes to see. But a future generation will. Isaiah the prophet anticipates that these words, the very word of the Lord, the Logos, will make itself present in every generation of the faithful again and again and again. In other words, because of what the Bible is, a material thing that delivers to us the very Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, that draws us into the Father by the Spirit, because of this thing here, we can never exhaust it. Never. Just think about that. Um, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Apparently some people do. Um, but I, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. But let's say he's not back in a hundred years. Or he's not back in a thousand years. I think we have every reason to believe that by God's grace there will be congregations of the faithful around the world still giving themselves to the study of the Bible right now. And think about it. Here we are 2,000 years after the founding of the church. Uh, do you know how much has been written on the Bible already? I sat with a publisher um, earlier in November at a, at a professional meeting, and we had a very sort of honest conversation. And he looked at me and he says, well, you know, Mark, we don't really need more books. He's <laughs> um, like, we need more wise books, but we've got plenty of books around. Um, I mean, when you think that someone like, I was reading Gregory of Miss, the Gregory Nazianzus, fourth century theologian, um, some of his sermons uh, this week preparing for the Epiphany, uh, sermon today, and uh, was conversing with one of my colleagues. And one of my colleagues who's studying St. Augustine said, I'm, I'm loving what I'm studying right now. I'm convinced that Augustine was reading Hilary, who was another church father, um, and, was, and was taking his works and brokering it, blah, blah, blah. And so he, he's, this guy is really smart. Uh, and, uh, and I said, that, that sounds like great stuff. But you know, it, it sort of dawned on me in the fourth century world, you could probably read everything that had ever been written on the Bible. Everything. Um, Luther might have been able to read almost everything that had been written on the Bible. But you and me, I mean, you get those catalogs that come in the mail, right? Um, book after book after book. Uh, we can't exhaust it. Uh, it's good that more and more is being written about it. And by the way, I should say this, and I'm fascinated by that history of interpretation. I love to know that the Holy Spirit was active in the 4th century by the scriptures teaching Gregory of Nyssa and, and, and Augustine 
a regular Nazianzus and Luther and Calvin. I love to hear their reading of the Bible. But guess what? Here we are, 2020, on a Sunday morning, listening to John 1 again, not just to hear what has been said in the past, although that's very important, but because we believe it's dynamically present in our moment right now. And they will in a hundred years, and they will in a thousand years. You can never exhaust the Bible and what the Bible is meant to do in the life of the church and the faithful because of what the Bible is. It's the very Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So I, you know, I, I just, to my mind, I think this is one of those features of Scripture that's incredibly encouraging and uplifting. And it also tells us something about what we should anticipate and expect when we engage the Bible and we, and we come to terms with it. Some of you have been you know, taking classes with me before, you know, I, I have a, a, a yeah, waning time, but a slight man crush on Karl Barth, um, the, the Swiss theologian who's, who's uh, with the Lord. Um, don't, don't Google him, he's got problems in his personal life, so we'll leave that to the side. Um, but but Barth um, was forced out of the University of Bonn around 1934. Does that sound familiar to the time, right? Why was he forced out? Here he was, a theology professor at the University of Bonn, and he would not take the oath of allegiance to the new Fuhrer that everyone was required to take if they were going to teach in a German university. But he wouldn't take the oath. Um, he ended up getting an appointment down at the University of Basel in Switzerland, and so he was leaving Bonn. It was his last lecture to students. They were all gathered around, and someone asked him, do you have any parting words for us? And these were Bart's parting words to them. Exegesis, exegesis, and even more exegesis. Let me translate that for you. Read your Bible, read your Bible, and even more so, read your Bible. That's what he meant. Um, because what it meant to do theology is not just to describe the Christian faith, but to encounter the living God in Jesus. That's the dynamism he was after. And where does one encounter the living God in Jesus Christ? It's by continued and faithful attendance to his word. So in other words, reading and studying the Bible is not just an archivist activity. It's not just a historical activity of description. It's a live encounter with the living God. And that's why, you know, there's a sense in which when you enter into Bible study or you're reading in your mornings or we come to church, you just, I mean, take your shoes off, right? It's holy ground. This is a special, unique thing that God has given us. And we shouldn't be surprised because all throughout the Old Testament, God uses material things to demonstrate and to, and to give his gifts of himself to his people. Not surprised that God would give us something material like this um, to continue to communicate his very self uh, to us. And we need it again and again. So, uh, that's... What time is it? Ooh. Um, so, let's, let's move on here. So, you have that in John 1, 1 and 2. And then we go into verses 3 and 4. We'll talk here in verse 3. All things were made through him, without him, without anything made, it was made. And again, we have this creation notion that John is speaking about in the beginning. Takes us back to Genesis 1. And now he's making very clear for us that it was the Word of God that was the instrument by which God created all things in the Spirit. And then we have this verse, verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life. 
That's another one of these phrases that I think begin to kind of rumble for us. Love. You will find later in John chapter 11 when Martha is a little bit upset with Jesus because he didn't arrive on time. And this is one of the frustrating features that we find about Jesus in the Gospels is Jesus is often late. Um, at, least, at least according to our own timing. Um, I mean, it's, it's one of those verses that kind of troubles us, right? John 11, the word comes to Jesus. Your friend Lazarus has died. The sister, I mean, it's, it's ill. The sisters are asking you to come. Next verse, and Jesus, Jesus lingered for another day. Um, and then he shows up, and Lazarus is already dead. And here you have Martha coming up to him and, and, and really kind of rebuking him. If you would have been, we know who you are. If you would have been here, he, he would have died. And Jesus said, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And she says, yes, I, I believe in that. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am the resurrection and I am the life. So here we have Jesus identifying himself as resurrection and life. He in him was life. What's the order that darkness brought into the world? And I think here, if we allow the Genesis context to continue to shape our reading of John 1, 1 through 4, it's going to force us on some level, not to reduce it to this, but to understand that darkness here does have something to do with Genesis chapter 3 through the following part of the primary history of Genesis of the entry of sin into the world. Sin brings with it darkness. And here is Jesus, who's the opposite of that. He's the and he's the He's the, he's the anti-matter um, to darkness. He's light, and he is life. Um, I, I, read, I read a book um, when I was in my uh, seminary, postgraduate days, by a German diligent named Hans Frey, taught at Yale for years. Um, not an easy book, not an easy writer. The Germans, you know, aren't, aren't, when they write theology, aren't interested in holding your hands and making it a pleasant experience. Um, and Fry certainly didn't either, but he wrote a book called The Identity of Jesus Christ. And in this book, which I would say had, it has had a profound impact on my understanding of the Gospels, that Fry says when we follow Jesus and we ask this question, who are you? And what did you intend? What, what were you about? Who are you and, and what did you intend? That Fry, I think this is so important, says, um, and I don't mean it, if this is your attention, it's okay. But some of us would want to answer that question by immediately trying to reconstruct the first century world out of which Jesus arose. I can name for you some pretty big name New Testament scholars that that's what they're going to do first and foremost. Do you want to know who Jesus thought he was? And the script according to which he was playing, I'm going to reconstruct the whole worldview of the first uh, the second of the world in the first century of, of, of the Judah, and we'll understand who Jesus was. And Hans Fry, I think, in accord with the, with the whole Christian tradition, says, well, what we need to do is look closely at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are sufficient to tell us who Jesus is and why he came, what his aims and intentions were. And it's not just the things that Jesus said, it's also the thing that, things that Jesus did. Because we find the gospel in the story, and the story is in the gospel. So the unfolding of the narrative itself is going to let us know who Jesus is. And so Fry begins to unpack all of this. You follow Jesus, and, and Jesus is Israel reincarnate. You see that kind of going on. Um, we follow Jesus, and we see him raising people from 
the dead and forgiving people's sins, giving the law. In other words, Jesus begins to do things that really look like God. And in a surprising, almost affrontive way. Even the Pharisees get it right. Who has the power and the authority to forgive sins? But God, no, nobody can do that but him. And here Jesus is forgiving and he's calming the waves and the wind. And, and this is the kind of ending that Fry says. When you follow all of this and you look at Jesus' narrative control, you recognize that from a story and a gospel perspective, at the end of the day, Jesus had to be. In him was life. In other words, reading the Gospels makes the resurrection of the dead a necessity, given who he was claiming to be. He had to be. He is life. He's the agency that brings life. This is why John, later on in John chapter 17, verse 3 says, Was eternal life to know the Father and the Son whom he sent? That's where real life is to be found. And the beauty of this phrase right here is the darkness could not overcome him. The sin that had entered into this world of the fall was not enough to take the life and the light of men that is Jesus Christ and to overwhelm it, to close it out. In fact, in time, you know that light, the light itself, which is, which is Jesus, will, will consume all the darkness. That's one of the reasons, by the way, when you get to the book of Revelation, it says, and there is no more night. Now, it's just one of those strange phrases. I mean, I don't know what that's going to look like in the new heavens and the new earth, but the point there, I think, is a moral claim of the fallen character of the created order. There's going to be no more darkness that entered into the world like Genesis chapter 3, because the Lamb will be the center of the world and will lighten that place, and there will be no more darkness because the darkness cannot overcome his life. He is life. That's why our proximity in Jesus is so important. This is why the Apostle Paul loves to use the phrase, in Jesus, in Him, in Christ. Why? Because to be in Christ is to be in the light of the world and the very life of God Himself. That's our hope. Our hope is not a turn inward. Our hope is not a correction of ourselves by pulling up by our own moral bootstraps. As important as morality is, God cares about that. But where's life to be had? Life is to be had only by the, for those who find themselves in Jesus. Because to be in Jesus is to be in life itself. Jesus is the life and he is he's the very life of man. He is life. Um, well, so let me say this a little bit about Epiphany. I didn't plan this today. Talk about this whole sort of light thing on Epiphany. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Epiphany because it's got its things in me this week, uh, preparing some for the sermon as well. Um, Epiphany is this season that um, affirms the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That, that's what Epiphany means. Now, I grew up, I was mentioning this to the Sunrise Center Thursday morning, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, uh, near Tarpon Springs. Are you familiar with the Tarpon Springs area? Kind of a great Greek culture, great Greek food. Old sponge docks there, and, and of course, you know, in the Eastern Church, January 6th, the Epiphany, that's really, that's their Christmas. That's their high holy day. Um, and every year, here are these young Greek high school boys. I, can see, I, I saw a picture of them on the Tampa Bay Times just this last week. Young high school boys in their blue shorts and their white shirts had to go to the edge of the water. Um, the the, the, uh, the patriarch 
throws a cross into the water, and those poor boys have to dive into that cold water to try to get the cross. So, I mean, Epiphany's, Epiphany's a, a beautiful season that celebrates the um, unveiling of our Lord, the revelation of who he really is, the breaking in of life. It's, it's got a complicated history in the life of the church, and it's why three things tend to come together in Epiphany, um, depending on where you are in the church and what location, but there are three things that are focused on. And we did two of them this morning. One of them is the Magi, right? So that's why I was saying, we've, as goofy as that song is, we three kings of Orient are. I literally saw some people this morning going, Sarah, you know, it's, it's kind of, but I love the, the, the words, right? Right? Um, Here come the wise men from afar who recognize who Jesus is, and in their offering to him of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these wise men, they recognize and, and are actually participants in the unveiling of the significance of Jesus Christ. He's the king, he's the one who's in our midst, he's the very word of God. So you have that. You also have the baptism of our Lord. Um, this is what the Eastern Church tended to focus on in Epiphany, including Martin Luther. Martin Luther thought it was really important to focus on the baptism of Jesus at Epiphany. And then the third one is the, uh, the miracle of Cana. And I can't remember which year in our lectionary reading, um, but maybe next year or the year after, the first Sunday of Epiphany will read John chapter 2, which is the miracle of Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. Why? Because that was the first miracle of Jesus' public ministry that revealed, that unveiled who he really is. Now, so all of this has to do with the unveiling of Jesus and his significance, the light that he brings to the life of men. And here's why I appreciate it, as I thought about it this week. There was a debate in the early church. Oh, let me rephrase that. There was a debate among scholars about how the early church understood their relationship to time. Um, if you read, for example, in the first and second century world, most of it was focused on the end of time. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because those were moments of deep and dire persecution in the life of the church. But once Constantine comes onto the scene in the 4th century and Christianity becomes the religion of the empire, now the situation is different. And you move from, some say this, from a focus on the end of time to the sanctification of time itself as we experience it. The setting apart of time. Now, most scholars will say, don't play one of those over against the other. They can hold both together in tension. But that's what, the, that whole sanctification or setting apart of time, to my mind, has become really important and a gift in our church's calendar. Why? Because everyone in the United States of America and the Western world, as we understand it, had to experience January the 6th. Kids went to school, parents went to work, everyone had to go through December 25. You don't, if you're secular, you don't have to go to December 24. I'm going to jump that now and go to December 26. I mean, in other words, it's time as we know it that's shared among humanity. But for Christians, these moments of time are they're set apart. They're sanctified to help us know that even though we are in the normal warp and roof of time like all of humanity, we are participating even now internal realities that it will be on our temporal moment. And that's why I'm grateful for these, 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 this sort of church calendar because if, I, if I'm really candid and honest, I need to remind you. And I need it regularly. Because I know how easy it is for me to not see these at the end of my notes. Everything becomes my child's issue with this. Or everything becomes this problem. Or working through this issue. Or whatever. And all of life becomes wrapped up in the now. 
And here we have these, and by the way, I don't think we can transcend that. But even in these moments where we can't transcend our humanity and our shared time together, God gives us Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Easter, Lent, to let us know that even in these normal moments of time, oh yeah, I'm participating in something that goes beyond this moment of time. Because I'm in Christ, and in Him is life. And He is the light of the world. And that's where my destination is, and that's where my true identity is to be found. Okay? Um, so, do we have time, David? I don't know what to Want to ask any questions? Bat anything around? Yeah. John says, in the darkness has not overcome it. And to me, I'm kind of expecting it to say, and will not overcome it. Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, about the use of the language there? You know, the term overcome is debated. And in fact, um, it's, it might even be better to translate that they didn't perceive it or understand it um, instead of overcome it. I mean, I think that there's a challenge to understand what the terminology actually is referring to. Um, the overcoming language tends to be combative. The perception and knowledge language tends to be one about people's understanding the significance of who Jesus was in that moment. And if we go with the latter, it's probably better than whistically, truth be told. Um, the temporality of it has to do with, with the uniqueness of the incarnation itself. Here Jesus comes into the world as the light of, as life and the light of men, and they didn't get it. They, 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 their, their senses were still dull in such a way that they couldn't perceive what was really going on. Mark, Jocelyn and I just saw a movie, uh, The Hidden Life. It's probably gone, but it was a true story about uh, Franz somebody, an Austrian who refused to take that oath of allegiance to Hitler and ended up uh, going to his death, but uh, became uh, beatified, beatified by the church, I think, from it. And it's beautiful scenery. It's really slow. A critic called it glacial. It's three hours, but it's a really moving <clears throat> movie there you may want to check out, A Hidden Life. True story. But he refused to take the oath of allegiance, and they because he was a strong Christian, and they just begged him. I mean, they they usually I thought they'd just shoot him, you know, take the end next problem. But they went in and had lawyers talking to him and all kinds of stuff, just practically begging him, just just sign this and we'll let you get out of here, out of the prison and stuff. But he wouldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. And he left a family and young children and everything. Great story. Anybody else want to pass it around? Yes, ma'am. Not here. Um, I was taught something a long time ago, um, and I've kind of held on to it for a while. And I'd like to understand your perspective on it, so you can okay. right. But last week, when you were kind of um, explaining, giving a quick overview of the four gospels in relation to each other. Yes. Um, I heard something that kind of boiled it down to Matthew explaining us, explaining Jesus to us as king, Mark as a, as his, as a servant, Luke as man, and John as God. Um, do you have any thoughts on those kind of quick, boiled down explanations yeah. of the four yeah. Gospels? Uh, I mean, this is, this is a great question. And, you know, of course, within the iconographic representation of the Gospels in the history of the church, you have the eagle and the cow. So they, 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 in each of the Gospels play a particular role in giving us an aspect and an entry point to the life of Jesus uh, that overlap with one another historically, but differ with one another and what they're accenting. Um, the, the ways in which uh, um, I heard one 
theologians describe it as the, the gospel, the four gospels are like a diamond that allows us to hold up to the light, the beauty of who Jesus is, and yet it reflects, reflects, it reflects different uh, color points. Um, so I'm happy with that. I think there's a lot of truth to this notion about Jesus as king and Matthew and the, and the humanity really emphasize of Luke. And you have the whole servant language that's going on in Mark. And, and then I think that's very true. This would be my one reservation about that, is the tendency to allow that kind of um, nice reduction. There's two, there's two kinds of reduction, right? One kind of reduction is to take something that's very complicated and complex and to present it in such a way that, that's understandable. And I, I, I think we all value that. The other kind of reduction is to do that in such a way as to then lose the riches and the nuances that are there outside of the reduction. Um, so for example, to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't really all that concerned about Jesus as God, I mean, that, if that's the kind of follow line on that, which I don't think it necessarily has to be, but if that's the follow line on this, then I would say we probably need to hold some reservation on this. There may be an emphasis, but it's not to the exclusion of the other things that we see in the other Gospels as well. You had mentioned, you know, your hope, our hope is when we give that child the Bible that the Word yes. and the light enters them, yeah. giving them life. Because yeah. they're dead. And that from your sermon, Ted Williams, if, if they can, science can bring him back, he's still dead. Yeah. That was, I mean, that, that's a great documentary. If you're into baseball, that is, it's from the American Masters, I think, from PBS. It is really very, very good. And, and horribly, horribly sad um, because of the issues that you mentioned here. And that's, that's what, you know, I, I, that's our prayer for children. It's why, by the way, the, the little second grade thing, some of you, may remember this, and, or maybe here, here at the Advent, where our kids into the second grade, they give them the Bible, and they, and they get this sort of to-do about it. I love it. I think it's such a great tradition in our church to give these kids those Bibles, because in giving them the Bible, which is such a gift, we're giving them the hope of Jesus himself, that Jesus himself will make himself present to these children through these words, and that's our, that's our great hope and our prayer. Okay, we gotta go. Lord, thank you so much for um, this season. All of our hearts, Father, need to be renewed again and again. And I pray that you will renew us. You will draw us back into your very life, into your life, to recognize, Lord, that we are safe in the arms of another. And Lord, that that will propel us out into the world to witness to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.